Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to Everything Compliance. Everything Compliance is the only podcast in compliance featuring the top roundtable of compliance commentators. It includes Mike Volkoff, founder of the Volkoff Law Group, Matt Kelly, founder and editor of Radical Compliance, Jonathan Armstrong, partner at Quartery Compliance, and Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitors with Affiliated Monitor, and Sarah Haddon, the publisher of Corporate Compliance Insights, CCI. In this episode, we begin a special two-part series on uh, the first six months of the Trump administration in 2019 around compliance. This episode features Matt Kelly talking about SEC changes, regulatory and sub-regulatory reform. I ask him, is it real or is it Memorex? Mike Volkoff uh, goes into some hyperbole about the OFAC compliance program. What does it mean for compliance practitioners and changes in OFAC enforcement for the first half of 2019? Sarah Haddon is sad about the end of privacy and talks about data privacy in the context of both regulatory and legal reforms upcoming. Next week, we will feature feature Jay Rosen and Jonathan Armstrong. Rants follow this episode with Matt, Sarah, and Mike, but you're in for a treat because Matt has a double rant because he rants during his uh, sub-regulatory comments as well. It's a great uh, episode. I know you will enjoy it. Thanks for listening. Everything Compliance is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network and now a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. And in this episode of Everything Compliance, we are going to take a review of the Trump administration around compliance uh, through June 2019. So uh, with that short introduction, we are going to start right off with Matt Kelly. And Matt, you have been writing about, thinking about, talking about changes in the SEC, regulatory and sub-regulatory reform or guidance. So where do you think the Trump administration has taken us in the first half of this year? Well, um, I would split that into a couple of different camps. And first, I will take the SEC, actually. So the SEC is moving in a methodical, but not necessarily fast, uh, pro- progressive pace to re- repeal some burdens that, um, you know, depending on whether you see their regulatory burdens or good corporate compliance reforms, uh, but they're looking to roll back some of these rules that have existed for a while. So, for example, um, sometime soon, in the second half of the year, certainly, we will see the SEC move to um, probably rescind Section 404B compliance with the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, and that requires that public companies get an annual audit of their internal control over financial reporting. They're not going to repeal it for everybody. In fact, they might not repeal it for a significant number of companies, but they're everybody with $100 million or less in annual revenue would be exempt. Uh, repealing 404B compliance for small companies has been uh, one of the big dreams for a lot of anti-SOX people out there. Uh, this is mostly going to be a giveaway to the biotech firms because biotechs can be large operations but make no money because they're spending it all on drug development and they might not make any revenue for many years. Um, so some of these biotechs 
have been emerging growth companies since that category was created five or six years ago. And now they are aging out of that. And now suddenly they do have to get the audits. They don't want to. And so they're like, that's that's happening. Um, exactly what form is that going to take? We can't be entirely sure, but it's going to happen. And everybody knows it's going to happen. Uh, what is most interesting, I think, is that it has taken so long for the SEC to move on this. But the chairman, Jay Clayton, has had many different issues that he had to deal with that I think pulled him away from his deregulatory agenda for the first two years of his term. Um, They're going to, I think, make some moves around whistleblower award reforms. I suspect that will get challenged in court if somebody wants to note the time and place. I predicted that. I predict it right here. Um, But principally, that the package of reforms that they had proposed would cap the size of large awards. Uh, and they would make it harder for outsiders to submit a whistleblower tip looking for an award. Um, they would also make it easier for people to claim smaller awards for smaller frauds, which I do support. I think that is wise. Um, and then we also have to watch while they are doing that, what are they going to do if Congress fixes the Digital Reality Trust Supreme Court ruling from 2018, which said if you want whistleblower protections under Dodd-Frank, you must report to the SEC. Um, It is unusual, I think, that in the last, uh, what, four weeks or so, we have seen the SEC give out two awards where they singled out the fact that the whistleblower had first tried to report internally to their compliance program. That went nowhere for whatever reason, and then they went to the SEC and they got their awards. Um, you know, I think in a perfect world, Congress would fix that legal decision so people could go to their internal compliance commission first, uh, get the protections if they need it, and then the SEC would still be able to hand out whistleblower awards as it sees fit. That solves a whole lot of problems if Congress moves and then the SEC does this are they really going to? We don't know. That it would be a common sense thing. So who knows if that'll actually happen in Washington, but it might. Um, but the capping large awards, I think that is a legally dubious idea. It's not in the statute. And several Democratic commissioners on the SCC have already said they didn't think that was legal, which is code for um, basically some good governance group out there somewhere. Please file a suit against the SEC as soon as they approve these rules, which I think the Republican majority will. Then they get hauled into court and then who knows what might happen. Um, And then on a practical basis for a lot of compliance officers listening, what has this got to do with you? Really, your whistleblower risks and headaches are not going to change to any great degree, I think, no matter what the SEC does. But that is what's going on there. Um, issue number two, Tom, since you brought it up, sub-regulatory guidance. This is a pet peeve of mine because we do have a lot of Trump administration people giving speeches, talking about how sub-regulatory guidance is not actually stuff you need to follow. And it is, as one Justice Department person said, hey, it's just paper. It's not in the law, so you don't have to follow it if you don't want to. Uh, That strikes me as one of those ideas that is uh, legally sound if you want to go out and argue it, but it is in the real world just totally impractical um, because your company has got a business to run. And I don't think most CEOs want to spend a lot of time and money uh, making big bets, going to taking a 
complaint that they might have, a regulatory probe that they're going through with the Justice Department. Um, I don't think that most companies, CEOs and boards would say, oh, yeah, let's go to trial over this. Let's defend our unique and innovative approach to corporate compliance because we disregarded that guidance. We're, we're really going to go to court over this. That's not what business executives want to do. That's what lawyers like to say you are legally entitled to do. And I like lawyers. However, they are not the boss at most companies. The business executives are the boss. And the business executives would typically want to know what do we have to do to make sure that the Justice Department isn't getting in our face? Following the guidance that the Justice Department puts out is a good way to make sure that you reduce the risk of them getting in your face. Uh, so why wouldn't you follow this guidance? Most of the guidance that they put out is very good. Um, I, For example, I love the from the Treasury Department. Their new guidance for uh, from OFAC on sanctions compliance programs, the guidance they put out is very good, very thought-provoking, not like anything we've seen from OFAC before. And I also think it underlines a logical flaw that a lot of these sub-regulatory guidance haters ignore, um, is that whatever compliance approach you might have, that maybe you've done your legal and risk assessment. You've decided, I don't need to follow the sub-regulatory guidance. I'm confident in this approach I've got over here, and I could defend it if I had to. That's all well and good if your risk has not changed because the environment for the risk has not changed. Now, when OFAC put out its sanctions compliance manual or framework, that was a clear signal that the risk environment around sanctions has changed. So you, company that are ignoring the sub-regulatory guidance, can you change your approach with that changing, bigger risk landscape? Do you want to spend more time thinking about even more innovations and then take an even bigger bet that if this gets ugly, we're going to have to go and defend it in court? Do you want to do all that? Or do you just want to follow the sub-regulatory guidance that OFAC put out? When they put out roadmaps, you might as well follow them rather than try and hack your way through the business jungle when you don't know what the landscape is going to be. Um, so I think that a lot of this talk about sub-regulatory guidance is just Trump administration people who'd like to hear themselves talk about anti-sub-regulatory guidance. Uh, like, yeah, legally, you guys have a valid point. Here in the real world, What's that got to do with us? You know, you got a business to run. You have a compliance program to build. And if you're not really sure how to build it, if you don't have a compliance program already, you could either create it out of whole cloth or you could just follow the sub-regulatory guidance and look for clues. Like that's what it's there for. And I don't really see the harm for it. I know there are people who are going to say it's still a big hassle. Folks, this is the business we've chosen. Corporate compliance is a big big hassle. And if you don't like that, that I don't know what to tell you. Like fighting through hassles is part and parcel of this job. So, you know, I, I think eventually the sub-regulatory fade, uh, fad will fade. Um, and then we can get back to the business of looking around for good ways to build compliance programs. And you find some of this sub-regulatory guidance actually is pretty good. Um, so that those are my big takeaways about what's going on lately with guidance and uh, regulatory world. So uh, for those listening, uh, you're actually going to be treated to two rants from Matt today because you just got uh, one <laughs> of his great ones around sub-regulatory guidance. 
But uh, Matt, I wanted to just uh, push that point a little bit further. Do you really see this as truly much ado about nothing? Because here in the last uh, four to six weeks, we've had uh, the Department of Justice with its uh, guidance around corporate compliance programs for the FCPA. You referenced the OFAC corporate compliance programs. Uh, uh, or rather their framework. So we're having some significant, truly sub-regulatory guidance put out. We are. And then we have basically political appointees standing up and saying, but you don't really have to follow it. It's just paper. If you've done your risk analysis and you're confident in your own approach, you don't have to do this. Like I said, legally true, politically correct to say it in the Trump administration era, but What's that got to do with an actual business that is trying to make money, grow, expand, navigate complex environments that are changing all the time, and they do have to worry about these things? And then just stand up and say, well, you know, we don't have to do it this way. No, you don't. But for Pete's sake, people, they're giving you a free resource that you might as well use. Um, And, you know, especially if you are a company that has not had a compliance program before, and you have not done a careful legal and risk analysis before, because you haven't faced these sort of risks before. If you're sitting there for the first time trying to think about how am I going to get this out of whole cloth, start with the bolt of fabric that they are giving you in the form of these sub-regulatory guidance documents, which, like we've said before, these things are very good. They're very informative. They're very thoughtful. You might as well put them to good use. Mike Volkoff, do you have a question for Matt? Uh, I do, Matt, and I think this will probably stretch into what I was going to talk about as well. So um, here's here's my question to you with DOJ and OFAC. And by the way, I think the OFAC guidance uh, represents a lot of DOJ influence yep. uh, in terms of it. But I think it goes beyond that with some prescriptive requirements, more so than – the DOJ guidance. But Mm -hmm. here I am, let's say I'm the business person sitting out there and and there was criticism of the DOJ um, guidance in that it's not sort of, it's, it's limited. It's really only relevant to companies that get in trouble. And so therefore, if you're a compliance practitioner, you should be looking at the issue in a different way than what DOJ's guidance is saying. And I know that you interviewed uh, the gentleman from AB InBev because I listened to your great podcast on that. But in reality, where are businesses and how should businesses use this guidance? And do you think it is, you know, not so relevant for people uh, or not. I mean, how, what should people, should they just say, well, since we're not under investigation, we don't have to meet these standards. Let's go do something else. Well, I first off would warn anybody to say, well, because we're not under investigation, we can go and do something else. There, right. but for the grace of God, go you, sir, who is not under investigation. It will happen eventually. Um, but I have often said that regulatory compliance is part of a broader challenge of trying to reduce risks for the company that things go wrong. And that is a business challenge. It's not a legal challenge. Um, But there is an awful lot of overlapping and blurring between those two things. So if you want a good risk management program, 
that reduces the risk of things going wrong, then there is a lot of substance in the DOJ framework uh, or the OFAC framework or the DOJ evaluation guidelines. But there's a lot of principles in there that you could still use as part of a bigger risk management program so things don't go wrong, even if they are not illegal or crimes. You, know, you can do plenty of stupid things in business that are not illegal, that are not crimes, and you still wind up with unhappy consumers or business partners pulling out or the stock price tanking and the board gets sued. All of those things are one gigantic mess of risk that the company is trying to beat into submission in various ways. And I think the DOJ guidance, the OFAC framework, they are just two of many tools that you want to keep in a toolkit and know how to use them well. Um, that, if that answers the question, like I would say, for example, uh, any focus on having a good internal reporting uh, system. You know, if you don't have one, then you're probably going to get some grief from the Justice Department if you're under investigation. But if you don't have one and the employees aren't willing to speak up about any issues, there's probably a lot of non-legal issues that your operations people would like to know about anyways. And if they don't cultivate a way to get that up to senior command, that's just that's not a good practice. Um, so you can beg, borrow, and steal from the DOJ guidance, from the COSO internal control framework, the COSO risk management framework, lots of other risk management principles out there, um, and meld them all into a bigger risk assurance program. It's, I, I know that some of the corporate lawyers don't like to hear this, but actually compliance is part of a larger thing that is not legal. It's part of a larger thing that is risk assurance and risk management, um, and that's what people need to think about. Sarah Haddon, you have been thinking about data privacy. What, what have you seen in terms of data privacy uh, and issues both in the public sector and more particularly with the administration over the past uh, almost six months? Well, I've certainly been thinking about it in terms of, of my own life. I had an amusing experience the other week with targeted advertising. You know, those personalized ads that follow you around the internet after you've searched for or purchased something. I had been looking online for a replacement for one of the four numbers in my home address that had fallen off the front of my house. That number had gone missing. I just needed one replacement. So after I made my purchase on Amazon, targeted advertising kicked in. And for the next two weeks, I got served up ads like, hello, Sarah, I see you were recently looking at the number seven. Perhaps you'd also be interested in buying a five. Or people who shop for sevens frequently also buy threes and fours. And that cracked me up because clearly Amazon and Google do not understand my problems. But they do understand me. They know me. They know everything about me and you, between search engines and social media and location services on my phone, I have no privacy anymore. None of us does. Which is why we asked that question, what is happening in this administration with data privacy? And really, not much, not yet. GDPR obviously just had its first birthday. So we are past the point where any other country might have looked to the U.S., as a credible leader in data governance. We are definitely not leading the pack. And we are seeing big tech in the news right now, obviously, make no mistake, but the, the headline stories right now are more about antitrust. 
in the U.S. competition and, and consumer protection are still considered separate, distinct issues. Overseas regulators are starting to look at privacy abuses, I think, as being more linked to market power. But for now, I think we're still unpacking those issues here more separately. We had um, word from the White House late last summer that Trump would be seeking a balance between privacy and prosperity. That was the phrase, a balance between privacy and prosperity. And I think that that's code for we're going to roll back any tech laws from the Obama era, like net neutrality, for crying out loud. And we're not going to impose any regulations that might cut into profits for big business. But, you know, maybe the lack of action on this issue is because we still lack a grasp of its scope. We're still trying to figure out what problem to solve. And then from there, whose job is it to solve it? Should the FTC make some rules or should Congress make some laws or should the industry police itself? And meanwhile, a lot of states just aren't waiting around for an answer. We've got California's data protection law that's going to come on board in 2020. And we've got multiple other states, New York and, and the great state of Texas and others that are creatively cobbling together their own versions of data privacy protections as we speak. So that tells me that within the next year or so, we're going to be looking at a patchwork of state laws that are going to make compliance by any company, especially small or midsize, very, very difficult. But everything about this is difficult. There's nothing easy about data privacy regulation. There's not going to be a one-size-fits-all solution for every situation and every industry. And there is no consensus, I think, on whether the focus should be, number one, on protecting consumer data from being monitored and collected without consent, and number two, punishing companies for misusing that data or not adequately protecting it or preventing breaches or informing the public about those breaches. So maybe we do need to spend more time just figuring out what can be fixed and how. But I mean, we're spending time talking about whether or not consumers should be able to check a box that opts them out of data collection on a website. That's kind of the crux of, of GDPR. But I have to wonder, how meaningful is that small action, that tiny symbolic attempt to prevent the collection and the retention of a few scraps of your data on one website when you consider that the entire economy of the 21st century is fueled by consumer data, all of our data? And you know who's leading this conversation is a, a Harvard professor. Her name is Shoshana Zabouf, and she has just come out with a new book called The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. That really caught my eye. This is a fascinating book. If you are into ranty academic commentary on politics and popular culture, and of course you are, uh, she says surveillance capitalism is a mutant form of capitalism that uses technology to monitor consumer behavior predict behavior, and of course, ultimately guide or manipulate it in the pursuit of profit. And she warns us in her book to rethink the way we view anything that's being marketed to us that's labeled smart or personalized. We might view these things as gadgets or services, but that's not what they are, she says. These are a supply chain interface for the unobstructed flow of the consumer data that fuels the economy of the 21st century. Wow, I just loved that. Surveillance capitalism, she says, is not the technology itself. It's not the algorithms or the platforms. It is the default business model 
for every successful company that's come out of Silicon Valley in the last 20 years. And it's not going anywhere, obviously, which means the idea of industries self-regulating is pretty much a non-starter. How do you stop that revolution? Well, you can't. In her view, it's as monumental and as disruptive as the invention of the printing press, the invention of mass production and the assembly line in Henry Ford's time. You can't roll back this kind of thing, no matter how righteously indignant you may be about it. And you can call for rules and regulations about data privacy, but there's an economic imperative driving this. We're not going to roll it back just because it's often annoying and creepy. And don't forget, of course, most of the data out there, as we all know, it's stuff that we gladly hand over. We hand it over in exchange for free and convenient use of stuff like Google Maps and Facebook. And I should point out, it's not just benefiting big tech. Data collection allows those smaller enterprises and startups to flourish and to innovate and to become competitive, too. And we can opt out of those free things. We can push for laws that give us ownership of our own data, but we're not going to get ownership of the surplus. We're not going to get ownership or control of other people's data. Even if you opt out, there is plenty left in the pipeline that can be used to track or to predict consumer behavior. So I think we just have to kind of mourn the death of privacy and move through those stages of grief. Be angry maybe be depressed, but whatever the next stage is, bargaining, I guess, that comes next, that might be where the lawmaking would come in. And when that does happen, I think we're going to see the the emphasis on consumer opt-out measures giving way to an emphasis more on punishing companies, punishing them for the breaches that they didn't prevent or maybe punishing them for misusing that data, misusing it in ways that can cause real harm like slander and fraud and corruption and discrimination, any of those things. And then after that, I guess we move more into acceptance. I think over time, we may just have to change the way we define privacy altogether or the way we feel about the lack of it. We do hear voices calling for digital dignity. That's a new phrase that we're hearing. And certainly there are those who say that privacy is a basic human right. But, you know, the cynic in me says that privacy as an absolute just no longer exists, with the exception for now, maybe with the the privacy of our own thoughts. And if you want to protect that, I guess you spend less time online. Read more books. Of course, we'll all buy them on Amazon. And I said earlier that thanks to data collection from Amazon, I have no privacy. And thanks to this podcast, I obviously now have no secrets since everybody now knows my home address has a seven in it. Word up, stalkers. You know, there's one number now, and you've got three more to hack into. Good luck with that. But that is what has been on my mind this week, Tom, about, about data privacy. Mike Volkoff, you got a question for Sarah? Yeah. Uh, Sarah, I, uh, I mourn the loss with you. Um, <laughs> one of the questions I have is, and it seems kind of bizarre, but if you ask the American public, and I'm sure in a polling question, they would say, we want more privacy, we want more protections. And given all the scandals that's occurred, uh, it's amazing that Congress has not, can't even get together on something like uh, privacy. And just to also make a comment on a, 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 I worked on this issue 
10 years ago or 15 years ago, whatever, in, in Congress. And the biggest problem was uh, the tech lobby is extremely powerful on the Hill because they give a lot of money uh, to a lot of politicians. And they were always able to you know, push back on this. But it seems to me like we're at an issue like background checks for firearms. You know, 90% of the American public want it, but we can't get Congress to do it. But isn't it like, I mean, there's such a vacuum because we have like a patchwork of requirements Mm -hmm. and standards to meet. And now there was a big fight. I guess the FTC is going after Facebook with some billion dollar fines plan. But how can like... Do you really think that if if we ever got a federal standard, would it really change that much, or or do you think well, it's never going to happen? I don't think it would change that much. Um, somewhat of, of what I said about there's so much data in the pipeline. We who are starting businesses and trying to grow businesses recognize that our success in doing that relies on our ability to collect and monitor and maintain and learn from data and and predict what consumers will do. I think that is the default business model that's not going to change. And data is always going to be a currency that we use to, um, as consumers, to get more stuff. You know, we, we can vote with your wallet if you don't like how a business is operating. But if you're using a free service, something that makes your life easier and more convenient, like Google Maps or like social media, we have to exchange some of our data in order to participate in that. And I don't believe that we these days as as consumers will fight for our online digital privacy hard enough to overlook the fact that we we still want our free stuff. We When you ask us in a poll, do we want privacy? Yes, but I'm not sure what we really all mean by that. We may mean that we want absolute privacy. We want to feel safe in our homes. We want to feel safe from being slandered or, or lied to or having fraud committed or something. But but are we willing to hand over our email addresses and even our health information and our, our banking information and all that sort of stuff in order to just participate in, in society these days? Yeah, I think we are. I think, I think we just have to kind of have that funeral and, and mourn the death of that. I don't know if that answered your question, but that's kind of where no, I'm no, on. No, it does. No, yeah. absolutely. Sarah, uh, I want to pick up on one of your earlier points or, or points you made uh, early on in your uh, remarks around uh, governments outside of the United States are really taking the lead on this. And, of course, you pointed to GDPR. Uh, for U.S. companies that are multinational, uh, do you see them uh, complying with GDPR and moving that towards a sort of internal standard so that uh, the de facto regulation or regulatory requirement that U.S. companies who do business internationally uh, are following is GDPR, and that's impacting the way they think through their own internal data privacy policies and procedures. Are you asking if I think that they are going to start complying? Well, uh, they have to comply if they're doing business there. So are they using that as a way uh, to think through or rethink their own internal policies and procedures? You know, maybe, again, the, the cynic in me thinks that they might use what they they gain from this year of attempting to comply with GDPR to look for ways to work around it. I mean, I know there's still a lot of confusion about complying. The, um, there are a lot of companies that are still a little bit behind in in figuring out what's required of them. 
things like, do we have to have somebody over in the UK monitoring this if we do business there or can our US, US based, um, person handle that? Yeah. There's still just a lot of, a lot of questions in there about compliance, but I think uh, cynically that companies might just use this year to think of ways to, to comply on paper, to meet those regulations, but to innovate and more creatively work around it in a way that they can still get the data that they need in order to fuel growth. That's pretty dark, but... Well, on that dark note, uh, (laughs) Mike Volkoff, you previously were not prone to hyperbole, but now you have rethought that position and publicly stated so. So, as you hyperbole away, what um, got you so uh, thinking that the OFAC sanctions framework was truly a game changer? Well, I, uh, and I subscribe, I mean, Matt has, you know, early on identified the importance of the OFAC guidance, and I think um, they... I think it was a game changer in the sense that it's prescriptive. It's not built upon, you know, here's some principles and just go out and do this. So what do I mean about prescriptive? Number one, uh, let me just list five of the things that are required. I mean, five significant prescriptive requirements. One is senior management being the board or the leaders have to review, approve, uh, and, uh, you know, distribute your sanctions compliance policy. So there, there onto that is accountability and uh, making sure that they are on board with this. Very similar to the trend in the 90s and two th- in early 2000s in the healthcare industry when HHS uh, tried to push and made board members actually individually sign various uh, regulatory documents or compliance documents. So that to me, it, it may not sound like a lot, but to me it's important. Number two, risk assessments now is a game changer in terms of requiring supply chain risk assessments, specifically listed in your risk assessment has to be looking at your supply chain. And the reason they did that is because their enforcement in the supply chain area has become incredibly aggressive. Uh, And that aggressiveness is um, predicated on the Elf Cosmetics case where an American company is held responsible for a supplier in China who in turn, and unknown to the American company, was sourcing materials from uh, North Korea. And the American company was held liable, even though they had no knowledge of that. That, to me, is a game changer because people were looking at risks in terms of sanctions with their third parties and their customers. Now they're saying, look at your supply chain as well. Training is now an annual requirement. Uh, for relevant people with regard to sanctions. At a minimum, it has to be annual. Nobody else, DOJ has never said that with regard to anti-corruption compliance training, but OFAC says once a year at minimum, uh, which is important. More importantly, in terms of my list, is internal controls 
and two aspects of internal controls. One is a specific procedure that is required for identification, elevation, and resolution of potential risks with regard to um, business transactions. Number two is detail, well, more detailed requirements with regard to uses of screening technology. You have to document now why you select a particular screening technology, what are the settings that you have done to make sure that your filters are not overly conservative or not going to miss anything, and number three, you have to test it annually and you have to document your testing. These are all requirements that I think are significant. And OPAC is basically saying, we've seen these list of excuses. Uh, we've seen these list of excuses, and these are just not going to satisfy us anymore. And so I think, um, you know, in terms of aggressiveness, it was pretty aggressive. I agree with Matt that there are a lot of great ideas in there, uh, and there's some pretty nice, uh, pretty broad compliance statements that have basically emboldened a little bit the, the trade compliance function within various companies to say, hey, we need more resources. Hey, we have these requirements and we need to get a move on here. So I think um, I share Matt's you know, overall impression uh, of the document. It was well done. It was carefully calibrated in some ways. And it was done in a way that um, is a game changer for trade compliance. Matt, do you have a question for Mike? Well, not necessarily a question as much maybe as a comment or a follow-on observation. But, um, Mike, I was really just struck particularly by when OFAC got into the nitty-gritty of screening software and settings, which... They're clearly including it now because they've taken enforcement actions. There was that electrical supplier in Virginia, Cobham Electric, where right. they had dinged Cobham last year because Cobham had miscalibrated its settings and missed a uh, customer of its that uh, was actually owned by a pr prohibited entity. And um, you're never going to see that in FCPA guidance, I don't think. You're like that level of detail that you'll the Justice Department is not going to get into the nitty-gritty of whatever due diligence software you might use in its settings. I don't think we're ever going to see a speech or a framework about that. Uh, but the other thing that I kept on thinking about, because uh, I was writing about this issue not long ago, is at least with anti-corruption dealing with local agents and doing due diligence on them, you can be a bit more deliberate if you want when you're moving into a market. And you can take your time and you can say – no new third parties and you know nobody gets a payment until we do due diligence but like this is about due diligence on your customers and transactions and that happens immediately and it's going to be much harder for people to say let's slow this whole process down you can slow down the process of expansion and hiring local agents if you want but that is not at all the experience you're going to have with sanctions compliance and customers and all this stuff. You're like, you're going to have to embed this, and it's going to have to move slick because that's what customers want. And I, like, yeesh, this is going to be hard. And Matt, just to follow up on that, two two comments myself. One is the amazing thing about OFAC compliance is it's real time compliance. Like you said, you have transaction yes. after transaction coming, and 
you know, you better be on top of it because you can't go, you can't do the transaction and then come back like an AML and say, oh, we better dig deeper into this. Uh, so that to me is a, it's real time and it's real resources and it's real risk. I mean, they just had an enforcement action against somebody for 11 transactions out of millions that, that were in violation of the Iran sanctions. Going back to the filter issue, if you actually, it's an interesting issue about your settings. Commerce Bank from Germany, which ended up paying, what, $1.5 billion for uh, their violations of OFAC, it turned out that their New York office, while they're doing these illegal uh, dollar transactions, had failed to update their filter system such that they were not catching a lot of the transactions. So I think their frustration started then and then led to uh, the comments in the Cobham decision that you're mentioning. But I think this has been a longstanding issue where people walk in and say, well, we bought this you know, uh, software solution and lo and behold, they didn't tell us it was wrong. Well, now they start to dig into, well, wh- where are your settings? How, did you update them? Were you getting real-time updates? How are you screening for you? And they also made this point in the, in the guidance or the framework that your settings have to be match your risk profile. And to me, that means if your risk profile changes, you better be uh, revising your settings and you better start from a baseline, which says, Here are my, here's my risk profile and here's where my settings are for what transactions I'm going to look at. So, yeah. I, I thought all your comments, uh, I, I mean, I think it was very helpful, and I think you're right to give a lot of credit to OFAC for, you know, to me, they advanced the compliance ball. I really think so. It's a game changer in that sense. And I'm not one, I'm Mr. Hyperbole, uh, but I'm not one to, to use hyperbole very often, but this to me was pretty significant. Mike, do you think the Department of Justice may uh, look at some of these factors, some of these prescriptive tools, ideas, and concepts, and perhaps rethink how they could be used in a anti-bribery, anti-corruption compliance program so that we might start to see the concepts sort of reintroduced back into uh, the FCPA enforcement world? I think that's going to be interesting because the I think you're raising an interesting possibility because DOJ and OFAC are developing a closer and closer relationship that's getting closer to the model of the SEC and DOJ in FCPA. And so there, there's a lot of cross information. Obviously, there are rivalries and all that stuff. But I think you're right. And the person who was the architect of this at OFAC is a long, was a political, and I worked with her person from the criminal division, uh, Seagal Manlikur, who uh, used to work at, uh, in uh, New York uh, at, at a big firm here with Mary Shapiro. And she is very, very smart and very cagey. And so I could see her sort of taking this and saying, look, you guys, look what we're doing on the due diligence on the vendor screening area. Maybe there's some guidance you could help here, at least to inform your questions that you ask people about your third-party system. But it may ultimately lead to something, I think. 
And I think we should watch sort of the enforcement actions that come out to see if we see any evidence of that. That's where I think that's where we'll see it first time. All right, let's move on to some rants. Uh, I assume you're warmed up now, Matt. Uh, do you have another rant for us today? Well, I, I do. Uh, this qualifies in the rant c- uh, category, but this is going to be a bit more lighthearted since I got a little wound up with the subregulatory guidance. But I'm going to rant about the Dutch Data Protection Authority, uh, which at the end of May violated the GDPR while it was sending an email out to journalists explaining how the DPA over there works with GDPR compliance. Uh, So this is what happened, is that apparently the uh, agency's spokesman was sending an email out to 38 journalists and was just sending out a mass email. And instead of putting all 38 email addresses in the blind CC field, uh, they accidentally put it in the CC field, so all 38 could see the email addresses of everybody else. Who among us, ladies and gentlemen, there but for the grace of God, go we. Uh, But nonetheless, this does count as a violation of the GDPR, which then led the Dutch Data Protection Authority to report itself to itself. However, this is the killer, is that they missed the 72-hour window to report their breach. Uh, The breach happened at 7.25 a.m. local time on May 24th, And apparently they did not report it until three and a half days later on Monday afternoon uh, at 3.15 p.m. local time on Monday, May 27. So they missed the 72-hour window by, uh, it looks to me, about eight or nine hours. Um, How did this happen? I don't know. Uh, It's more like you just have to sit back and marvel at the complexity of modern organizations that you can't even report yourself to yourself about your most important issue within <laughs> days. Um, so hats off to the data, the Dutch data protection agency for giving us this memorable incident. And I'll just leave it at that. So I guess the fad will not fade. Uh, Sarah Haddon, what's on yeah, your that, mind? Rant that was awesome. Well, I have, I have a shout out, I think here. I referred in my segment to um, surveillance capitalism as a revolution. So I think my shout out then is to the resistance and in particular to um, artists who use their artwork to make a statement and to mobilize other people towards actions. Um, in 2015, I got to mangle these names, Tega Brain and Surya Matu created an artwork called unfit bits and it encouraged users to subvert the fitness data that is collected by their fitbits they suggested that we should all attach our fitbits to a bicycle wheel or to the arm of a metronome so that that you know sort of constant back and forth movement would bamboozle those who might collect our data and abuse that data. And really, I thought that was charming. You can't talk about art, maybe, without using the word juxtaposition. So I'm going to say the juxtaposition of the the digital stuff and the idea that any of us still have a metronome, maybe a bicycle, but not a piano in the front parlor with a metronome on top of it. I really thought that was funny. So that's my shout out. Shout out to the resistance. Mike Volkoff. Uh, just a quick rant, and it, or it actually just follows a lot of what I was uh, we've been talking about today. 
I, I'm, I'm a little bit dismayed with critics of the Justice Department guidance, critics of the OFAC guidance. Um, I think that uh, it's a, to me, to have federal prosecutors and federal enforcement authorities putting out uh, as much guidance as they put out going back to 2012, which was an FCPA guidance, which I thought was an extraordinary document. It, uh, it, it, and to, to sort of uh, criticize it and say it's not enough or it doesn't raise the bar high enough, I, uh, I feel like that's kind of petty criticism. And people that do that, I think, uh, you know, would look at a glass of a half empty glass or half full glass and say, hey, that's empty. And I don't look at life that way. So I hope people will, uh, you know, stick to the guidance, use it as a valuable tool and give credit where credit is. Uh, great uh, insights from everyone. And uh, let's see what we can come up with next time. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this part one of our special two-part podcast series on the Trump administration and compliance through the first half of 2019. Join us again next week where we have our commentators, Jay Rosen and Jonathan Armstrong, give us their observations. The Everything Compliance Gang is Mike Volkoff, Matt Kelly, Sarah Haddon, Jay Rosen, and Jonathan Armstrong. Everything Compliance is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network, C-Suite Radio. It's also available on Spotify, the FCPA Compliance Report, Megaphone, and J.D. Supra. I hope you will check us out, and I hope you'll join us again next week. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.